welcome to CCC's Town Hall, AI Licensing and the Path Forward. I am Katie Bell Rowland, General Counsel at CCC, and I am excited to moderate today's program where we will review the history and significance of voluntary collective licensing and the role it could play in driving innovation and in science and technology, including in AI. To talk about AI and voluntary collective licensing, I am joined by a truly expert panel. We are so lucky to have them here today. So first up, we have uh, Daniel Gervais, um, PhD. He is Milton R. Underwood Chair in Law at Vanderbilt University of Law School, where he serves as Director of the Vanderbilt Intellectual Property Program. He's a member of the American Law Institute, or ALI, where he serves as Associate Reporter on the Restatement of the Law Copyright Project. And he was previously a legal officer at the GATT WTO and head of section at WIPO, and previously was a vice president here at CCC. So, uh, welcome, Professor Space. It's so great to have you here. Next, thank we you. Have, Thanks for having me. Yes, it's so so wonderful. Uh, we also have um, Carlos Galalabazari, who is a lawyer who works in Switzerland, South Africa, England, and Wales. So truly global, specializing in intellectual property. He has almost 20 years of experience with law firms in Africa, Europe, Switzerland, and the United States. He is a strategist and problem solver in negotiations, conflict resolution, policy, and he participates in advocacy for norm setting and litigation in five continents. So thank you for joining us today, Carla. And next up we have um, Bruce Rich, who is, a senior, who is a senior partner in the international law firm of Wild Gottschall Niji where he's headed the firm's intellectual property and media litigation for more than 30 years. During his tenure, he led a transformation of the practice to address issues presented by the advent of the internet and the emergence and explosive growth of digital commerce. Right now, Bruce serves on CCC's board of directors and he chairs the board of directors of the nonprofit education reform organization, Al Education Inc. And he's a member of the board of advisors of Dartmouth's Rockefeller Center for Public Policy. So as you can see, we have three very expert people here today to talk about these really important issues. And without further ado, I want to jump right into it. And the first thing we wanted to talk about today was about AI. So what is AI? And before we talk about the copyright issues, to give kind of a high level overview. So Danielle, um, could you briefly explain what we mean when we talk about AI in today's discussion? Of course. Um, so the term AI is, is often used as a synonym for machine learning. Uh, machine learning, as the name suggests, is, is a process by which AI machines are given a, a data set to, to learn from. And this learning process can be supervised or, or not. Uh, and sometimes the, the machines just basically learn on their own, for example, just by uh, accessing anything they can find online. But I think for many people on the call, the most relevant form of AI is uh, large language models or LLMs. Uh, that's a technology made popular, of course, by uh, ChatGPT. Uh, those systems can do many things, including generate new texts and images uh, and other types of content. Uh, that's why they're referred to as generative AI. Now, LLMs typically use uh, large data sets uh, and but there's, uh, it's important to know that there can be smaller scale uh, large language models. And I think they're actually likely to flourish in the, in the next few years in areas such as law, but also medicine, construction, engineering, and so on. Uh, the, the data that is used to create LLMs and, and uh, for other forms of AI uh, very often comprises copyrighted uh, materials such as texts, uh, but also music, video, images, 
And the process by which LLMs work is that they, they break up these uh, copyrighted works into small chunks we call tokens. And the token can be anything from a syllable or word or combination of words or pixels in an image. And uh, using this data set of tokens, the, the AI, the LLM, can then answer prompts by predicting, for example, in the case of text, the next best word uh, to answer the prompt. And it can do so repeatedly. And as people choose and correct the, the output of the machine, then the machine learns to get better at what it does. And this is why uh, AI is already able to surpass uh, humans at more than 100 uh, cognitive tasks, tasks that actually require uh, what people call high cognition, uh, including uh, uh, the bar exam, for example. Thank you. It's definitely an area where we have so many different technologies and use cases and it's good to get that foundational discussion of generally what we're talking about for the, the rest of this hour. So thank you very much. And it's clear that AI is multidimensional and it has many different technological aspects. What are some of the ways that AI intersects with uh, copyright, Danielle? Well, if you look at the, at the piece uh, that um, uh, CCC uh, put on LinkedIn that I prepared uh, or my, my uh, checklist of issues on, on generative uh, AI and, and IP, uh, also on LinkedIn, uh, you'll see there's a long list of, of uh, IP and, and specifically copyright issues here. Uh, but for our purposes today, I think the most important point is that the, the process by which uh, AI learns involves the making of a copy uh, of the data that they are using. Um, making this copy has several advantages for AI companies from preventing delays in accessing remote data, for example, uh, but also uh, it uh, allows uh, people to check the data set to correct or modify the data set later if required. Uh, a related issue is the removal of copyright management information, or CMI, uh, which almost necessarily happens when the uh, when copyrighted material is processed by, uh, by an AI. What I mean is that uh, either the work, the copyrighted work is copied, but the CMI is ignored and therefore uh, effectively removed, or the work is copied without the CMI in the first place, uh, which as I see it also amounts to, to removal. And this removal is a separate source of liability, uh, by which I mean distinct from, from, uh, uh, from copyright infringement. So to summarize, uh, First, a copy of copyright material is made uh, for the AI, and this copy is not transient. It's, it's typically a copy that will, uh, will remain. Uh, and second is, is the issue of uh, removal of CMI. The, the next question uh, is how much of this copying is covered by an exception to, to exclusive rights, including uh, fair use in the United States, uh, fair dealing in a number of countries, including Canada. Uh, and specific exceptions adopted in various countries around the world. Uh, now, those exceptions usually do not apply to the removal of, of CMI, uh, just to the to the copying. Thank you so much. And you mentioned exceptions and limitations. And Carlo, would you mind telling us a little bit how they might differ internationally? Yes. Uh, thank you, Katie. Uh, essentially, the the rights involved in um, you know, in, in protecting copyright are fairly uniform throughout the world thanks to international treaties. But the exceptions are far less homogenous, and especially in a new area such as AI, 
Uh, there is a wide variety of different exceptions that partially overlap with the concepts of AI, such as uh, Danielle just just uh, explained. So I think one of the best known ones is perhaps in Europe, exceptions to text and data mining, but that is not to say that there's a perfect overlap between all forms of AI, machine learning, uh, train, use of training data, verification and, and calibration of AI machines and the, the TDM exceptions. In uh, Europe and in the UK, there is a distinction between res um, doing text and data mining for research purposes, be they commercial or non-commercial in the UK, and commercial users doing commercial text and data mining. In addition, in, in Europe and the UK, and also in Singapore, for instance, the, the provenance of the data, and often that data is embedded in copyright works, uh, is relevant. So the, the sourcing has to be from a, from a legal source or the access has to be lawful. That is, again, not, not guaranteed in all other areas where regulation of use, reuse of copyright works takes place. Thank you. So it seems that there are different, around the world, we have these different kinds of exceptions, limitations to be careful to look at and, and see what is happening in the variety of places. So right now we've been talking a lot about the input. So what has gone into these AI technologies, but I know while it is not the main focus of our talk today, that people are interested in the outputs too. And what, what about the outputs? What do copyright and AI works have in common when it comes to outputs and how does copyright law treat these outputs? So with that question, I'm going to ask um, Danielle if you might be willing to provide some insight into how copyright works and the human authorship question. I think you are muted. My apologies. Uh, I was muted, yes. Uh, so <laughs> Uh, very interesting question, Katie. So, so the the output of, uh, of an LLM uh, is is technically based upon the material it has learned from. Uh, this implies that the output could be a violation of the right of reproduction uh, and the right uh, that is known in the United States as the right to prepare derivative works. Uh, it's uh, usually uh, referred to as the right of adaptation or translation in other uh, jurisdictions. Uh, they're not exactly the same, but pretty close. The U.S. Copyright Act defines derivative works as works, quote, based upon, uh, unquote, one or more pre-existing works. But uh, courts have limited the scope of the rights so that the words based upon must be read uh, carefully. Still, uh, there are certainly cases where, where infringement is possible. And I can quickly think of, of two scenarios. So first, let's say that the machine is given a very specific prompt. Um, it could then copy an identifiable work in its data set as a basis for the output. So uh, this will depend in part on the size and variability of the data set, and it will depend in part on the quality of the algorithm, including the quality of, of filters that were programmed into the LLM. So let, let's test our, um, the audience's uh, knowledge of, of, of art. Uh, if I ask the machine to produce uh, an image of a man wearing a black bowler hat, a black suit, a white shirt, and a yellow tie with a white dove covering his face, the machine could pick the famous painting by Magritte uh, for its output because this prompt is very, very specific, even if the machine has learned from a very large data set of 
uh, of paintings or art. Now, if the data set is smaller, infringement is more likely. For example, uh, this is my second scenario, if the machine learns only from a data set of, say, Jackson Pollock paintings or Andy Warhol's works, it is likely to produce something that resembles one or more pre-existing works by Pollock or, or Warhol. That similarity could constitute an infringement, and it could infringe both the right of reproduction and the right to prepare derivative works. Uh, the, the last point I'll make is in terms of human authorship, so far, uh, the vast majority of countries that have taken a position of, uh, on this uh, consider that there should be some human creativity in a work for copyright protection to, to arise so that a, a machine-produced work uh, would not uh, be protected by, by copyright. However, this does not uh, preclude the possibility of humans and machine working together. Uh, to produce uh, some sort of copyrightable output. Thank you. And Carla, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Um, yeah, I think, uh, the, the, you know, when we come to that second point that Danielle mentioned, where you have um, collaboration between machines and and humans, some jurisdictions have the concept of works, you know, generated, computer-generated works. And... Uh, so that could be one peg, but there could be also other solutions in other jurisdictions. I think one specific question of interest to any user of AI tools is, should that, if there is intellectual property and copyright accruing, subsisting in any collaborative outputs, will that be owned by the, so to speak, end user of the AI tools, or will that be somehow um, be owned by the companies that have provided the AI tool as well? That's a really good question. And one I think we will see unfold as we move along during these technological advancements. And I want to take a minute to just welcome everyone to the program today. And thank you for joining. And if you do have any questions, we'll be taking them at the end. So please put them in and we will be sure to address them as we get to the end of the program. So we have now kind of talked about the beginnings of what of our understanding and the discussion of AI. And with that, I want to do a little bit of a shift and talk about another really important issue in copyright, which is voluntary selective licensing. And we're going to be focusing on what is this, you know, the voluntary selective licensing, how do people license and get permission to use work? And then we will be able to tie that together with AI and really understand the kind of the symbiosis of these, these different concepts. So with that, you know, there are different approaches to how people have used copyrighted works throughout the years. And as long as there has been copyright, there have been ways to use them. So licensing is a key part of the system. And with that, I wanted to ask Bruce, could you briefly describe the different types of licenses that we see in the copyright ecosystem? Hi, Katie and everybody. I'd be glad to do that. So rights owners are, of course, free to contract directly with users one-to-one -to, -one, to create what are generally called direct licenses. Uh, and those stipulate the scope of the rights granted and the terms and conditions of those uses. In other words, again, one-to-one. -one. In addition, under U.S. law, as well as a number of foreign laws, there exist statutory licenses uh, entitling uh, various categories of users to gain access to and exploit in prescribed ways certain categories of copyrighted works. So a couple of examples under U.S. law, Section 111 of the Copyright Act 
provides a, a compulsory or statutory license uh, dealing with secondary transmissions of radio and television programs by cable and satellite systems. Uh, in turn, Section 114 of the Act uh, prescribes a statutory license dealing with the public performance of sound recordings by means of digital audio transmissions. And a third example is found in Section 115 of the Copyright Act uh, pertaining to uh, the making and distributing of phonorecords for non-dramatic musical works. These provisions are actuated by perceived public policy uh, benefits, which alter the default rule uh, that normally entitles copyright owners to exercise their own discretion whether or not to license their works in the terms under which uh, they might do so. Uh, in practice, I should add, these statutory licenses can be quite complex, both in their interpretation, uh, in their administration, and also in their implementation. And finally, to the point, the ultimate point of uh, a focus of, uh, of much of today's conversation, there are voluntary collective licenses, uh, such as those offered with respect to music, public performances of musical works by organizations, most prominently ASCAP and BMI. Many of you are familiar with those organizations. And with respect to the copying and distribution of text works uh, by the Copyright Clearance Center. Uh, these licenses aggregate uh, the works of many, many rights holders into one or more forms of collective license, as the name implies. These most commonly take the form of uh, so-called blanket or repertory licenses, which typically afford the user access to all of the works under the license for a fee that's negotiated uh, between the user and the licensing organization. The proceeds from such licenses are then equitably distributed uh, among the participating rights holders based on formulas that vary, but that typically take account of the value of the respective works and the frequency with which they've been uh, exploited by licensees. So that's, those are a large number and different variety of ways to license these works and get permission. For a moment here, let's focus on the voluntary collective licenses. And how have we seen them used over the years and how have they evolved? They've, 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 they've evolved in response, I would argue, to market need. Uh, for example, the music license organization, the original uh, organization, ASCAP, was formed all the way back in 1914 to bring under license random, unplanned, spontaneous, widely scattered public performances of music uh, of the type that was, were later described in a, in a notable Supreme Court uh, ruling as resulting from, quote, the disc jockey's itchy finger and the band leader's restive baton. Gives you an idea of, at least in that earlier era, the types of uses that it would have been cumbersome for individual rights holders to track down secure licenses from enforce infringements concerning. CCC, in turn, was formed in the late 1970s, initially to address the anticipated widespread and hard-to-monitor copying enabled by then-developing photocopy uh, technology. So the fertile soil for these licenses lies where they can offer significant transactional efficiencies, both to rights owners and to users of copyrighted materials. For rights holders, this entails situations where the costs of identifying myriad users of their copyrighted works and negotiating countless individual direct license transactions would be frankly prohibitive. 
For users of significant volumes of copyrighted works, one-stop licensing uh, is equally transactionally efficient. Now, such arrangements also can be valuable in settling disputation in still developing areas of copyright law, particularly where fair use boundaries are uncertain. And you've heard a preview of that in the, in the AI setting. Rights holders and users alike benefit when a thoughtfully conceived and reasonably priced collective license is available that can minimize costly protracted litigation and for users can avoid the risk of copyright infringement. Thank you. So it, it seems that it is in many different types of works and different types of use cases that voluntary collective licensing has really been at play. And when we, we talk about them, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the different types of uses are, that are out there. And Danielle, would you mind giving us a taste of that? Well, uh, so uh, I, I certainly agree with everything Bruce just mentioned. Uh, there, there are several types of collective licensing, and, and there are even several types of voluntary collective licensing. And as Bruce mentioned, collective licensing uh, can be based on, on compulsory or statutory licenses. Those are basically synonyms. Uh, but uh, and they're common in the music field. But for for text and images, uh, not just in, in the United States, but but elsewhere around the world, the system is is uh, by and large voluntary. Which means that uh, authors and uh, and publishers must opt in to the system, and users must uh, must sign a license then with with an organization that represents this this large group of right holders. Uh, and uh, so, uh, as Bruce mentioned, this can be uh, an exclusive uh, license or a non-exclusive license, which is the case with, with CCC. So, again, this varies by, by country, by area. Um, so, in the, in the case of, of text and images, uh, the system really started with, with photocopying in the 1970s and evolved to uh, digital uh, uses uh, later on. And... Um, is uh, possibly going to to evolve into into other areas uh, as well in the future uh, around the world uh, the situation is uh, more or less uh, the same in the sense that there's a very well old uh, established music collective organizations that go back uh, as Bruce said to the uh, early part of the 20th century uh, some countries also have voluntary collective licensing of uh, theatrical plays for example uh, art reproductions. Uh, so there's really no limit to, it's really, as, as Bruce mentioned, a matter of transactional efficiency when when a, a group of right holders, often a, a group that will be in several countries around the world, needs to license users of fairly large amounts of, of copyrighted material. Uh, one thing I would mention is that even if it's voluntary, there are jurisdictions where uh, there is a mechanism to set uh, rates uh, even when there's no agreement between the, between the parties, it could be a specialized tribunal. Uh, some countries have that. Uh, but for CCC licenses, the process is, is uh, voluntary, as I understand it, which again means that the user decides whether to sign the license or not. And if they do not, then the risk, of course, is, uh, uh, to, uh, is litigation. And throughout the world, we have these different scenarios and where are some of the examples where the governments have encouraged the voluntary collective licensing option? It seems that does happen. And Bruce, would you mind giving us some information on that? Sure. The principal example I'll give is, is CCC, but I first want to just mention uh, following on Danielle's comment that 
even voluntary licenses in the United States in the case of the music collectives have, because of a topic we'll touch on in a bit, uh, antitrust concerns, uh, created mechanisms that are quasi compulsory. That is, once a process is initiated between users or a user group and those organizations, a failure to reach agreement can trigger uh, judicial remedies and judicial rights in the user and indeed even rate setting mechanisms. So you have the whole spectrum of use. But to your question directly, CCC's formation is a good example of government at least nudging. As I mentioned, at the time the current Copyright Act came into force in 1978, there was this roiling debate centered on the proper treatment of then brand new photocopy technology. Education interests, among others, were keen on seeing the benefits of this new technology. And necessarily the content community felt that there was a serious risk to the unlicensed and unlimited reproductions of their works. So the Senate and House reports accompanying the enactment of the new law um, came up with the constructive suggestion, uh, why not create a neutral clearinghouse to facilitate what it termed workable clearance and licensing procedures pertaining to photocopying? They had in mind a voluntary organization dedicated, in their words, to working out means by which permissions for uses beyond fair uses can be obtained early, quickly, and at reasonable fees. And that's what spawned CCC. It actually opened its doors, the effective date of the Copyright Act, January 1, 1978. Thank you, Bruce. So what are some key takeaways we have about the benefits of voluntary collective licensing? So how does that work in the entire ecosystem of copyright permissions and whatnot? Bruce, would you mind um, providing us a little bit? So I'll just, I'll just, I'm sure Danielle and Carla will want to add, but I would, I would just flag two or three. One, we've each mentioned transactional efficiencies in markets that would otherwise probably fail as a practical matter in allowing copyright commerce to operate. Um, CCC notably has been what we like to call on the board in, Management likes to call a solutions provider in those situations where the markets would absolutely otherwise freeze, where there would be frustration of both on the licensing end and on the fair use side and making making lawful commerce work. And, and relatedly, and finally, reduces that kind of legal friction. Undoubtedly, the ability to have a license that meets folks in the middle, as it were, uh, and that allows lawful transactions to occur, reduces people running to court either to bring infringement suits or to argue fair use defenses in those suits or a combination of those. Carla, do you have anything you'd want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, especially in this area of fast developing uh, technology that, you know, the gradient of uh, improvements of all AI systems is such that we haven't seen the end of it. It is important to, to respect, frankly, property rights uh, as a, as a, as a system that organizes a market as uh, otherwise downstream users have no certainty over quality um, of what goes into, into the AI tool. So I think the, you know, the, the neat summary, I think it was said in a, in a U.S. submission to the Copyright Office of uh, credit, um, consent and, and compensation can easily be addressed through voluntary collective licensing in a many-to-many -many situation which the AI technology and, and the use of copyright in training presents to the world. Um, Danielle, do you have anything you would like to add? 
sure. So you were asking about uh, governments uh, encouraging uh, the formation of, of collective systems, and, uh, and and Bruce rightly mentioned the the discussion surrounding the adoption of the the seventy six Copyright Act in the U.S. But uh, around the world, it is quite common for uh, for governments to um, to uh, push for the formation of collective licenses uh, in, uh, in in areas where where authors, uh, publishers, and, and users can can benefit from from the, the transactional efficiencies there. Uh, the Nordic countries uh, are a very good example in text because they use a lot of English language materials that is published, uh, you know, around the world from the U.S. to Australia to India and everywhere else. Um, uh, France just actually uh, tabled a bill in, in there. I'm not sure it will ever pass, but but uh, because it, it contains so many different things, but but one of its purposes would be to create a collective license for um, generative AI uh, and. So there's this perception in many countries that collective licensing is a solution, not the panacea, but a solution uh, to uh, that. That's part of a, a toolbox of, of solutions for uh, for rights holders and, and users of, of copyrighted material. Uh, I, I, I think it's really important to emphasize that the one-stop shop approach that this uh, uh, provides uh, it. You know, if you, as Bruce was mentioning, if you look at, at people using large amounts of copyright material, uh, they're probably using material that uh, was 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 published, made available uh, around the world uh, by hundreds or perhaps even thousands of different uh, authors and, and copyright holders located in, the, in several different countries, uh, and it would be really prohibitively expensive for for uh, for those users to locate and negotiate a separate license with each right holder. But it would also be prohibitively expensive for the right holders to to license individual users. I think that's the that's the reason why certain governments have have pushed for for collective uh, solutions. Not to mention, because we tend to forget those uh, that there you know the the need to bridge linguistic differences, uh, currency exchange. Uh, differences between the legal systems of each country. So, so there's a there's a good uh, set of, of uh, reasons why uh, collective licensing is, uh, uh, you know, part of a, a toolkit here. Thank you, Danielle. And um, Bruce, would you want to say anything more about the things you might want to consider when looking at voluntary collective licensing? As Danielle mentioned, it is part of the toolkit that can be used when thinking of ways to get access, legal access to materials for use. I think I think it's important to note from long experience uh, that uh, while voluntary collective licenses can offer m many of the advantages we've been citing, uh, they also present potential legal risks if not managed and organized and monitored correctly, because such licenses typically offer a set price for access to a bundle of copyrights, uh, those arrangements can raise and indeed have raised both antitrust in the United States, competition law more generally concerns overseas. The concern is over the risk that the collective licensing mechanism itself will bring about a stifling or a reduction of price and other competition between and among the various participating rights owners. So it's prudent for collective licensing organizations to engage expert counsel to help guide the development and the implementation and adaptations over time 
of the licenses that it offers to minimize those risks. I would say while it's a, a complex subject, as a general matter, the safest environment is one where the collective license, as Danielle mentioned, is non-exclusive, meaning that users have other options than to uh, obtain the materials they seek, strictly speaking, through that organization. It's one among other license avenues available to the user. And examples are, as I mentioned earlier, the ability, technically at least, to get direct licenses with rights holders uh, and or, in the case of a CCC, opt for a transactional license service option where individual transactions can occur and are priced individually uh, by rights holders. Thank you, Bruce. So we've had a, a pretty good overview right now of what the collective licensing situation is and all of the different ways that it can be effectuated throughout the world. And what I want to bring together now is tying together AI and licensing and all the challenges that might be there and the opportunities because copyright is, at least in the United States, we call it the engine of free expression. And it is there to help people build and create and innovate. So it is good to know how they can intersect and work together. And I wanted to see, you know, what is, first of all, what are some of the challenges that can occur when people are trying to use copyrighted works with AI technologies? Danielle, you mind talking a little bit about that? Yes, I will. I'll try to be brief, but it's a, it's a big question. Um, so so to, to make the, the basic point, I think there are clearly three ways in which the current legal uncertainty about the, the scope of exceptions, including fair use, will be removed or, or diminished in a way that will allow machine learning and specifically uh, LLM technology to progress. And the three ways are legislation, court decisions, and a market-based solution. Uh, so very quickly, uh, national legislative initiatives uh, can only provide guidance within the borders of one jurisdiction, obviously, so that uh, it, users that are relying on those will need to figure out not just the different exceptions in, in different country, but in fact, deal with a patchwork of different rules if and when this happens. Uh, if you pin your hopes on, on courts to uh, find a uh, perfect solution here, you, you should be very, very patient. Um, and not to mention the legal fees and the, the uncertainty of the outcome, including possibly very substantial uh, statutory damages in the U.S. Uh, court decisions will take years. Uh, a future Supreme Court uh, judgment on this, we're looking at what, four to seven years is my best guess. And who knows if, if it will be the end uh, of a process or it will start a second cycle of people reading the tea leaves of that uh, opinion and then trying to, to, uh, uh, to apply it. Uh, add to this that uh, even in a scenario in which a court would ultimately find that, that much of what AI companies have done in the U.S. is exempt from liability for copyright infringement and CMI removal, the cross-border issue will remain. Uh, of course, copyright holders also have to bear in mind the risk that courts will eventually shrink the scope of their rights here. Uh, so litigation, it seems to me, is far from a, a perfect uh, a path forward. Uh, there's another thing that we sometimes forget is that the AI process depends on the quality of the data that the machines learn from. And to ensure that AI can really contribute to progress, we need machines learning from high quality data. And a lot of this data is uh, content published by professionals and those professionals are more likely to want to protect and license uh, this, uh, this content as appropriate. So, so put simply, 
all users, not just the large ones, should be able to get access to legal, uh, high-quality data to train the machines. So the bottom line, as I see it, is is uh, that a market-based solution uh, makes sense here. Uh, a license, whether individual or collective, uh, can cover several jurisdictions. In fact, it can cover almost the entire world, uh, because as Carlo mentioned, copyright is pretty uniform worldwide in terms of the rights. Uh, now, there's a major rate reason why uh, some copyright holders uh, and users have already negotiated deals, and it's exactly that, that it, it, it puts an end to uncertainty uh, on, on possibly a worldwide basis. Uh, then, as I mentioned earlier, users uh, are, are likely to need data from different sources in many different countries, which um, uh, needs to, 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 uh, uh, to get to a solution. Uh, it matters because uh, if, if, we, if users can only use data for certain parts of the world because of differences in the legal system or the absence of licenses, this could lead to uh, absence of, uh, uh, of uh, diversity in the data set, for example. So for all those reasons, I think a voluntary collective solution uh, is a good way forward uh, for, for AI companies and for copyright holders. Thank you so much. And Carlo, do you want to say anything about the international implications of this? Yeah, I mean, the the ultimately it's a, it's about a, a market and uh, like in any market, you have four basic parameters. You have you know who who is contracting with whom what what is the time frame is it for past training or present training is it where is the training and the use taking place and then what is the nature of the reproductions and are they exempt or not and these can vary the way the law in different countries looks at these four basic questions varies and so voluntary licensing is one way to bridge these four questions that can get in the way of, of having an efficient marketplace for AI. This may even be in the interest of, of you know, of, of AI developers who might say, well, you know, we, we, we have such a beautiful machine. Let's, let's not look behind the curtain, what went into it. Uh, we don't want to pay. Um, but if they think further about the trust and confidence that downstream users need and the ability to perhaps reuse if you think of a summarization tool, um, if a downstream user wants to, with confidence, be able to use part of the AI technology to summarize for internal use, perhaps um, certain 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 state of the art knowledge or um, certain designs in architecture, who knows? Um, the 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 copyright will be able to infuse confidence and fairness and ethics into that process to have uh, a wider distribution of the AI technology, to have more confidence in its outputs and results, and more confidence in ability to re reuse those, those uh, outputs. Thank you, Carlo. And Bruce, do you want to add anything? I would just add one other complexity in this long list. Um, in, in an environment with as many uncertainties about both the uh, direction of AI commercially, as well as the many legal issues that arise. Uh, a challenge for a voluntary collective licensing organization is creating enough uh, logic and comfort in the eyes of both, both sets of parties necessary to the transaction, that rights holders will feel secure 
that what is to them an early era of exploitation of rights will be managed effectively, efficiently, and adequately from their standpoint through a collective license organization. And in turn, users uh, have to be comfortable that the solution and the license fee structure and everything surrounding it are fair and appropriate. And I don't think it would be proper to minimize the challenges in a market that is still evolving like this in bringing both sides together with an equitable license arrangement, although the process is extremely important to pursue. Thank you so much, Bruce. So we have what we have all of these kind of swirling issues and we do know that some copyright owners are licensing their works for AI uses already. And Carla, I wanted to ask you if you wouldn't mind giving us some examples of these kind of use cases that you've seen. What are the kinds of things that are already happening? Right. Um, so in, in all areas of copyright, there are users developing. There uh, is some in the music field, for instance, a company that develops scores, mainly based on classical music for, for uh, synchronization for film music. So um, you have some um, developers that uh, are you know, using licensed music. There is a French company that uh, gave a presentation recently in Paris called Artinity. They work with many uh, rights holders in the States of typically very famous visual artists and um, are, are themselves, um, it's part of their uh, quality assurance that they use licensed visual art to generate derivative look arts that, that you know, and a known creative uh, painter might have done. Then in the field of video and, and movie production, you have big giant players such, such, such as NVIDIA that produces like uh, typical explosions or matters um, that are kind of generated through, through, the, through AI technology or uh, technology that's used in, uh, in, in, you know, in, in, the, in the costumes of actors, etc. CGI, computer-generated animation, imagery has long been with us. In the literary field, I think uh, summarization tools, perhaps in, in the legal publishing field, no doubt uh, are playing a role. And um, in the pharma industry, I think there are a number of success stories, particularly in the structure design of, of proteins, where AI tools have played and continue to play a major role. In fact, I, I don't think uh, it is possible really to be in, in uh, pharma uh, science and research without coming into touch with machine learning and AI at this point. Thank you so much, Carlo. Really to show the diversity that's out there in the uses and what is going on. And one question I wanted to ask everyone is about accepting limitations to copyright, which we mentioned a little bit earlier on in the program. And the question I have is, are there different perspectives for looking at these for AI? And obviously that is jurisdiction specific. So how, do, how does AI working with these exceptions and limitations, are there specific ones? Is it less to fair use in different countries? So that's a very big question, uh, but I thought I would, I would start with Danielle to take a, a crack at that one. Thanks, Katie. So, um, so yes, there are specific AI exceptions in, in, in several countries, uh, Europe, Japan, well, Europe's not a country, but group of countries, uh, Japan, Singapore, Switzerland. Uh, so 
what in all those cases, though, I think courts will need to clarify the scope uh, of the exception. And uh, I don't want to uh, to debate uh, fair use, uh, which is the, the main U.S. exception. But uh, but I would say this uh, as at least a point to consider. Uh, I've heard many times that the Second Circuit opinion in the Google Books case uh, basically provides a full a full answer here, and and I'm not sure I, I agree with that uh, because generative AI in particular is not just about giving access to to snippets of material as as Google Books does. Machines are processing copyrighted material in a different way. They're extracting meaning uh, that's embedded in the specific expression of the works that they're uh, they're uh, learning from. Uh, so, actually, I would I would call this semantic extraction. It, 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 and so, how much of this uh, can or should be covered by by an exception like fair use, especially when the material is then used to create material that can compete with the material the machine learned from is is not. Uh, it's not a slam dunk, if you'll allow me the, uh, this expression. But, but fair use is admittedly a contentious issue. So let, let me put it this way. One way or the other, the point is that there will always be a limit to, to the exception that a national law contains. Uh, to put this perhaps differently, no exception is unlimited. Uh, if an exception was unlimited, there would be no right left. So, uh, so obviously, uh, there will be some limit. In fact, international law, the, 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 the TRIPS agreement managed by the World Trade Organization contains something called a three-step test, which limits the, 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 the flexibility of, um, of national uh, governments in, in out, adopting exceptions to, to copyright law. So overall, I'll end with this. Exceptions and limitations are, are, are obviously an important part of the, the copyright framework, but they cannot do all the work here. Uh, not to mention the delays and the uncertainties and, and waiting for uh, either legislative changes or judicial decisions interpreting those uh, those legislative changes. Thank you. Carlo, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I, I, I think there are outside the U.S. and fair use, uh, the, the situation is, is spotty. You know, they're, they're, they're basically two, two kinds of, of rules seemingly evolving. One are the specific exceptions that... Uh, Danielle referred to that that deal with aspects of copyright and and, and give fairly specific limited pigeonholed types of exemptions and then there are more broad laws such as transparency rules or in in China I think uh, the, around fifteenth of August or fifteenth of September can't remember now a new sort of ten point set of guidelines has come into force which again demands respect for copyright and transparency of what works have actually been used. So I think there are these two broad frameworks, and then there is most recently the, the French bill that Danielle also already mentioned. So right now, I think one would have to say spotty. Um, definitely not, not enough to run a, a significant high-quality AI development company based purely on, on the shoestring of one or two exceptions. Thank you, Carlo. And I think this is a good time to, to tie the two issues together a little bit about voluntary collective licensing and how can you efficiently use copyrighted works in conjunction with AI. Is voluntary collective licensing something that we should be exploring and that can help with the situation? And if so, how? And I will open that up to whoever would like to answer that first. Well, let me, let me. Go ahead. I, let Sorry, Kate. Okay, thank you. Let me just jump in quickly. I think a number of the themes here have been developed over the past uh, 45 or 50 minutes. 
Uh, we have obviously a lot of fascinating questions that will keep both legal practitioners and legal scholars busy for generations to come, me excluded. I'm past that uh, immediate phase. Um, but but as, as several of us have pointed out here, you can't let markets languish, uh, point one. Point two, uh, while fair use issues on the U.S. side are important, even critical, uh, there is no AI exception to copyright law any more than there was an Internet exception to copyright law. The information yearns to be free arguments, while emotionally attractive, uh, 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 simply don't reflect the reality that copyright is meant to be a flexible doctrine over time, with fair use being the safety valve to make sure there's the right balance between the exploitation of works that encourage authors to create uh, and the ability to enrich society by not enlarging that monopoly beyond what it can be. Experience has shown that voluntary collective licensing can serve a really constructive role in bridging a gap, which, as Danielle points out, if left unresolved, would be years and years of litigation retarding the ex exploitation of markets. So done right, it appears to be a, a very, very productive a solution not to the exclusion of other exploitation, not to the exclusion of areas of fair use, but trying to strike that proper balance to make markets work. Thank you so much, Bruce. Carlo, Danielle, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, as much as AI has a, has a copyright deficit, you know, um, it's also true that the, these, the, the, the debate is informed by how big is the deficit that copyright holders have with AI? To the extent that uh, you know there are no pragmatic solutions in the market of of you know of offering licenses widely and conveniently in situations adapted to technological change and in many to many situations and across geographies, um, that that foments the call for more and more exceptions among governments. So. I think this is not a sort of in vitro experiment. It's a live, a live developing technology and, and, and rights holders should also consider um, this aspect when deciding on, on, on their options regarding their property and their copyrighted works. Thank you so much, Bruce. Uh, I mean, Carlo. We've had a great Andrew group. It's been a it's been a great discussion that we've had. We've got a, several really good questions coming in. So I wanted to take a moment that, so that we can answer them. The first one I wanted to talk about is about the AI Act in, in the EU. And we have a question about what is the status of it? Is it what is the impact with copyright? And for that one I will turn to Carlo and see if you could provide us some insight. Yes, I think the EU under uh, a French commissioner Breton has taken strides in, in coming up with an AI Act, initially not really concerned with intellectual property or, or copyright, but with the quality and the tiered safety aspect for, you know, letting loose AI technology on, on the general public in a, in a safe and, and, and regulated manner. But as um, the, the large language models, the foundation models have become part of everybody's consciousness in the last eight to nine months, the AI Act has uh, clauses added to it to require foundation models to uh, be transparent in what copyright protected works have been or are being used 
to train or calibrate these models. In fact, there are broader calls now also to more widely accept that this transparency is needed. And um, even though fully respecting that the trade secret laws that are equally important, it is entirely possible to uh, respond to these transparency rules as, um, as AI developers undoubtedly need to engage in, in, in indexing and the normalization of those reproductions that are made. So uh, it's a, a rather late graft on, but perhaps similar to the GDPR, where Europe in a way uh, sh has shown the way, I think, to, in large measure to other parts of the globe. I think here again, credit is due to, to the Commissioner Breton and the European legislators saying we need some mechanism to have AI evolve in a human-centered manner. Thank you, Carlo. And I was actually going to piggyback on your question because you mentioned GDPR, and there was a question in, from the comments about compliance risks. What do you do about concerns about confidentiality of input, privacy infringement, when uploading and trading data sets? And if you might have a, a moment to address that, that would be great. Yes. Yeah, I mean, by, by all means, uh, copyright aren't the only the only uh, legal you know frameworks that AI is subject to and, and hasn't been catapulted into a legal nothing. So all of these are issues. I would com compare this to another arcane area. Perhaps some of you, because the audience is very very expert, I can tell, might have known or heard of the Nagoya Protocol of uh, Protection of Genetic Resources and Provenance, very prevalent in, in pharma, in food health companies. Nowadays, if you are a, uh, a perfume producer, let's say, uh, Dior, when you go to a chemical company, you will in your contracts require the chemical company to give you a statement what the provenance is of any um, any any uh, compounds that have been included in any generated perfume. And in the same way, I think more and more of these contracts between downstream users of AI tools and AI producers, developers, will have to have compliance statements that there were no um, you know, sensitive personal information uh, used without consent, that uh, any, you know, clinical information has been anonymized, that copyrighted works have in fact been licensed or otherwise uh, there's, it's, it's a non-infringing development exercise. So I think we will see more and more compliance contracts between developers and downstream users. And that I think will also be an added pressure to arrive at collective licensing models upstream. Thank you, Carla. We have another question that implicates open source and open access work. So that is a question of what do you, what is the situation with using these open access works, which is a very complex issue, but I will turn to um, Danielle to address that in the first instance. Yeah, very briefly. Uh, so two things. Um, there, first, there's a misconception that everything that is available online is uh, is uh, free of copyright somehow. In in, uh, in certain uh, discussions, at least I've heard that that is obviously not the case. Um, so there there's uh, copyright protection in, in material that's, that's found online. There are terms of use. There's a a license. Uh, uh, perhaps there's some legal exception that allows some use, but it, it doesn't mean it is free of, of copyright. 
the second about open source is a, sec a similar misconception that there is no copyright on, on open source. Uh, it's, it's actually exactly the opposite. The reason that it, it can be open source is precisely that there is copyright. And because there is copyright, when you license open source, you can require the user to share what they do with the open source material. Uh, that's possible because there is copyright. If there was no copyright, if this was a public domain uh, uh, work, then anybody could could appropriate it, make something with it, and then keep it uh, as their copyrighted work with with uh, no obligation to share. So, so the, these two misconceptions really need to be uh, to, to to be uh, dispelled. Thank you, Danielle. We have, I think, time for one final question. And unfortunately, the time for the, the answer to the question is not enough to handle the incredible breadth of it. But the question is about the cases. There are cases that are out there in the United States um, dealing with copyright in AI. I think I was counting them up last week. We're up to nine um, that deal with just the um, input part, not to mention the human authorship aspect of things. And in two minutes, Danielle, can you give a rundown of um, the general takeaway <laughs> from the cases and what the situation is? And they are, these are mostly, these are all U.S. cases, but I will say there is a companion to one of them in the UK. True. Well, the uh, human authorship, so so the Copyright Office of the United States and the, the District Court in, in Washington both said that you need human authorship, but I believe the Notice of Appeal was filed today. So we'll hear uh, from the Court of Appeals on that one. I, and I I, uh, I hope that the, uh, they will uh, confirm the, the uh, ruling from the lower court. But uh, in terms of infringement, uh, most of the cases are, are class actions, so there'll be debates about the class, but the, in terms of copyright law, this, the, the claims are generally about violations or of the right of reproduction in taking the works, the copyrighted material of the plaintiffs uh, to train uh, AI. And then uh, there are additional claims in most of these lawsuits about copyright management information being removed uh, sometimes about the output. So some of the lawsuits also say the output of the, of the generative AI system was uh, infringing. Uh, and then uh, a whole bunch of uh, typically state law claims, anything from unfair competition to uh, unjust enrichment to, uh, there's, there's many of them, I have a long list of, uh, but uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, what the courts uh, make of a, a, a fair use in that context. And that will take several years, we may end up with different uh, appellate opinions in different circuits. Um, and so that's why I'm saying four to seven years before the Supreme Court issues its first opinion, which may not be its last on this, uh, is uh, maybe even optimistic. Thank you so much, Danielle. And so we've had a really, really exciting conversation today that's been really fascinating. And I think I, I have learned things and I hope that everyone in the audience has taken away some good points about AI and the relationship with copyright. And with that, thank you for coming and have a great rest of your day.